Hi, my name is Martin Purnell, and welcome to Off Grid Christianity, a weekly podcast for those who go or don't go to church and for those who are disillusioned. This podcast series is to encourage via conversation and not necessarily change your mind prior to listening. You can contact us as well by email, ogc at accessradio.biz, business spot B-I-Z, and check out our Facebook page, Off Grid Christianity, and coming to a website near you very soon indeed, our own website page. More about that in uh, weeks to come. So please enjoy today's guest, who read Agriculture and Sciences at Oxford, and then spent a year in Pakistan before doing an MSc in Soil and Water Engineering. He then specialised in crop rotation. He is the Renewal Advisor and Director of Church Growth Advisory Team, and also the Chair of ICS, Intercontinental Church Society. He is passionate about growing healthy churches and helping to find Jesus for themselves and the public truth of Christian faith. He loves riding his Harley Davidson and is known as the Biking Bishop. It gives me great pleasure to welcome to Off Grid Christianity the Bishop of Hereford, the Right Reverend Richard Jackson. Hello, Richard. Thank you so much for joining us today. Really appreciate it. What's the weather like in Hereford today? Uh, do you know the sun's out, Martin? It's amazing. It's wow. been raining, and and you have to. We're a bit nervous here because we live by the River Wye, and uh, when it rains a lot, the river goes up very quickly. Really, and sometimes it goes all over our vegetable patch, which is very sad. But you're the man to sort it out with your uh, well, degrees. I don't know about that. It's a long time ago. <laughs> I was doing that. <laughs> I've forgotten. I mean, I can probably tell you how to nuke weeds in a variety of horribly illegal chemical ways. <laughs> but those days have gone now. I'm much more environmentally friendly. Oh, good. So napalm is out then? Napalm is out, yes. yes. Although when, when we moved into this uh, house, there, we do, there were quite a few weeds in the garden. And I was tempted, despite wanting to be reasonably organic, I'd go down the road and say, I want something that was banned 20 years ago, preferably radioactive, please. <laughs> Could you imagine if you went in there with your, or your, your refinery on? Well, I know. My motorbike's in hospital at the moment. And no. uh, yeah, yeah. I'll be eating lentils for most of August and September, I'm afraid. But, but they're rather bemused when I go in there. Oh, I was going to say, because uh, Harley Davidson's are known as uh, hogs, aren't they? You're, you're riding oh. a hog. I was just wondering yes. if you'd take it to a vet rather than a mechanical engineer. Uh, no, mm. that's a facetious remark, and we should move straight on. <laughs> Swiftly. <laughs> Thank you. Right, let's go for question one then, please, Richard. Oh, question one. Yes. Oh, yes, your questions. <laughs> you, you, you had lots of questions, didn't I you? Did. I mean, look at those. Oh, uh, oh, invite anyone from history to an evening meal, yes. alive or dead. Who would that yes. be? That's a difficult question, actually, because, of course, history is full of inspiring characters. Yeah. Do you know, I thought Churchill, which is probably a boring sort of conventional approach. Churchill said some amazing things, very theological things. I quote Churchill sometimes when I preach confirmation services. Churchill said, because people are very self-conscious, aren't they? About And Churchill said that when you're 20, you worry about what everybody thinks about you. When you're 40, you stop worrying about what everybody thinks about you. And when you're 60, you realise no one was thinking about you in the first place. Oh, that was Churchill that said that, was it? Churchill said that. I think that's a great, great line. Yeah. But he said some really amazing stuff. And he had, I mean, he had a brain the size of a planet. He had a vocabulary sort of 35 times bigger than anybody else's. And so to be such a polymath, really, a hugely gifted academic, yes. and yet also had that common touch as a leader... He's very inspiring. Well, he's very inspiring, of course, to many people, isn't he? I yeah, think yeah. it would be quite nice to sit down with him and have a chat. Well, do you know, that was my answer. 
up until was it? Yeah, up until a few months ago, when I had the privilege of uh, interviewing on the podcast Anne Whitcomb, and uh, she asked mm. me, "Well, who are you going to choose?" And I said, "Well, I'm, I'm right. going to choose Winston Spencer Churchill." Oh no, you yeah. can't choose him. I said, "Why not?" She said, "Well, we know 95 percent about him." Uh. I said, "Yes, but wouldn't it be great?" Because I'm fascinated by all things Second World War. So you know, to ask yeah. him questions, she said, "No, no, no, we know all about that." But you'll go yeah. from a different well, tack, you see, yeah. so that's good. A different tack, yeah, that's right. I'm coming from a theological tack. Yeah, now that'd be an interesting concept. I mean, his faith, his faith would be an interesting question because it's difficult to know quite where he was coming yeah. from. I mean, he wasn't, I don't think you would describe him as devout. I don't know if you'd describe him as a Christian well, probably not. Would, really, would you? No, you probably wouldn't. No, I was trying to be polite. <laughs> <laughs> He's definitely had a faith of some sort because he, he definitely knew that he was on the planet for God to do something, yeah. wasn't it? He had a sense of he's had a sense of purpose, yeah. didn't he? That he knew, he knew he had a, a job to do, yeah, a sense of destiny, I suppose. And what a job that was! Yeah, he drank a lot too. Apparently so. Was, I, I think most of his time pickled. Actually, perhaps that's why he said such witty things. Could well have been. Could well have been. I always wanted to know how they smuggled all the brandy and champagne out from him during the Second World War from France. Yeah, it's impressive, it isn't, isn't it? Isn't it? People died for his alcohol habit. There's a thought. Yeah. Moving swiftly on. Christian, <laughs> <laughs> your favorite, yes, no, please. your favorite biblical character. I'm reading this off your oh, email. Good, here. Good your favorite it. biblical character or favorite biblical story. Do you know? I my favorite parable, without a doubt, is the prodigal son or the lost son. Really? Yeah, yeah. It's it's slightly cryptic actually, but it is the gospel in a nutshell, and it resonates so powerfully, doesn't it? With because it's about families, and we all know about families and families falling out, mm. and it. It makes just those pictures and analogies between the family relationships that we're all so familiar with and our relationship with God. It's a, it's an extraordinarily powerful piece of literature as much as anything else. And I mean, so many of Jesus' parables were that. They're, they're actual, they're like layers of an onion. Yeah. You, know, you can sort of go down into them at, at layer after layer after layer and discovering new nuance and meaning every time you do it. But I mean, that's my, that's, that's my favorite, I think. Well, tell me more, because especially after COVID and everything else, how does it resonate with you? Well, I, th I think it's because perhaps I recognize myself in, in, the, in the younger son. That's what, I think that's why par parables often resonate with us, don't they? We, we see something of ourselves in us. And, and you know, because I became a Christian from a completely atheist background, mm -hmm. so I could sort of resonate something with that sense of rebellion and you know dismissal of god and not wanting to have anything to do with him and yet encountering the grace of god yes. a god who wouldn't wouldn't stop pursuing me in the same way that the you know the father doesn't stop pursuing the son even though he's basically been told by the son dad i wish you were dead yeah yeah, yeah. nonetheless that that relationship is is unbreakable he won't let the son go how atheistic were you then before you became a Christian? Oh, I would, well, well, I mean, as, as atheistic as an arrogant 16, 17-year-old can be, I suppose. What's the most atheist thing I did? I used to sit in my, in these impossible ancient times when there are only three television channels. Yes. And I used to sit in my bedroom sometimes on a Sunday evening and compose letters to the producers of religious television, suggesting they take this rubbish off so we could have some decent telly on a Sunday <laughs> night. But I never sent any of them, fortunately. <laughs> but that 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 was, um, yeah. I used to do that. You could imagine if those letters were found 
Well, yeah. yeah, exactly. But I did also remember when, when I was finally, against my better judgment, dragged to the church youth group by my sister. Uh, it was a youth club, actually, on a Saturday night. And the bloke who ran the, the white Young People's Fellowship on the Sunday night stood up. And he was saying, you know, tomorrow night, it's the Young People's Fellowship, and we'll be studying the Bible. And I can remember heckling him from the back row. What were you shouting? I did a little rubbish. Winston Churchill style. Winston, yeah, a bit like that. But but I suppose part of it was that, and I think this is probably true for many people today, perhaps increasingly true for people today, I just assumed Christian faith was a load of rubbish. I'd never Mm. looked into it in any serious way. But because none of my family were Christians, because none of my friends were Christians, I, I just never had really encountered people with a living Christian faith. I'd, and I'd been, to, I mean, I'd been to church four times before I was 16, and two scout parades and two weddings. Yeah. And they were all unbelievably tedious. Yeah, yeah. You know, I have, to, I have to, you know, really admire the courage of my parents' convictions because they, they, didn't, they, weren't, they didn't baptize me, didn't make me go to church or anything like that. Interesting. For me, it was a sort of spiritual vacuum. I just didn't know anything about it. So when I started I mean, I think one of the reasons I started looking into the church was because I was so rude and they were all so nice to me. <laughs> How come your sister went to church then? Well, she, she went to school just down the road from the church and uh, a number of her friends were part of the YPF and so she started going with them. And then she started, you know, wanted to, to drag me along. Wow. So I, I got dragged along and here I am. Yeah. And did she ever become a Christian as well? Oh, uh, yeah. 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 I wonder what your parents must have thought. They thought it was a phase <laughs> yeah. I was going through. I think they probably realise now that I, it may be permanent. <laughs> but I bet they were happy to say, oh, guess what my son's doing for a living, you know. Well, no, no, yeah, my dad was very proud, bless him. My dad's still alive, oh, wow. bless him. And my mum, my dad's 97. Wow. And my mum's 86. They live in France. Oh, brilliant. And do they ride motorbikes still? No, they don't, no. I, I love them to bits, but they... Uh, yeah, they're, they're, I think they've moved to agnosticism, I think they probably say now. That's a start. <laughs> they're moving in the right direction. <laughs> I, do, I do a weekly video for my congregations here in Hereford. I'm on, I'm on video. I started in lockdown. I am just put 164 in the can. Wow. And uh, they watch those every week. You just never know what's going to happen, do you? No, no. That's fantastic. So. fantastic. Thank you for sharing that. I'm sure we're going to come back to uh, your earlier days later on. Mm. Question three, then. Do you want to read it out, or shall I? Oh, yeah, sorry. If I were Prime Minister for the day. Oh, gosh. Now, it's difficult to answer that one, because I could answer that frivolously. That's what we want. Frivolous? Yes, please. Okay, uh, that uh, it, it should be an imprisonable of offence, not keeping lane discipline on motorways. No, no offence to BMW drivers. No, no. If, you, if you're on the motorway, keep your lane discipline, and don't all cluster in the overtaking lane. Oh, thank you. I've just been to Germany, actually. They don't do it there. They're very good. They're lane discipline. They are. Yeah. Yeah. I've got all sorts of others which would be much, much more serious, but probably would be tweeted. (laughs) (laughs) Well, give us one serious one. That would be the end of my career. Well, I I think I would make it a law that if anyone enters into a serious committed relationship, they had to do a relationship building course. Because I I think the breakdown of relationships is at the root of most of the things yeah. that are basically wrong with our society. If people could go to a, something like, you know, marriage course or whatever, I mean, I'm not saying 
making it no, no. compulsory for people who have to be married. But and I recognize the reality of where we are. But actually, if you're in a committed relationship, to do some sort of work and training on making that relationship permanent and giving you the emotional skills, the relational skills and everything else to stay together, I think that would make an absolutely enormous difference yeah. to the overall health of our society. Like a pre-relate, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that would be, yeah, that would be, if, if that would be a thing I would think would be important. Well, I'm going to let you become Prime Minister and you can have both of them, if that's okay. Oh, that's very kind. Thank no, you very I, much. I like that. I prefer doing what I'm doing. Okay. To being Prime Minister. Wouldn't like to be Prime Minister. Yeah. But get free football tickets. Mind you, you must probably get... Do you? Well, I would have thought so. I'm, I might get free tickets to see Hereford FC, but that's probably not very... Uh... Listen, I've been to Edgar Street many a time with my team, so... Have you? Yeah. Who do you support? Bristol City. Oh, Bristol City. Yeah. Oh, well, it's better than Rovers, isn't it? They're, they're slightly... Who? Who are they, Ed? <laughs> yes. Hereford... Well, I have to be a bit careful here in Hereford because I lived in Sussex for 25 years mm. and therefore, inevitably, I support Brighton and Hove Albion. And Brighton and Hove Albion knocked Hereford out of the Football League in 1996. Oh, did they? And memories are long. We still get 2,000. I mean, Hereford are in sort of three below the bottom of yeah, the league, and um, they still get 2,000 a week at home games. Yeah, it's a crying shame. I used to love going to Edgar Street. Yeah, got many memories of watching Bristol City get stuffed there and get mm. stuffed. And I think we well, Bristol one. City aren't doing too bad now. No, we, it's going to be a good season this season. You heard it here yeah. first. We're going up. And they're going up? Yeah. Premier Bristol. League next year? Premier League, yep. This time next year, I'll be All telling right. you. Okay. <sighs> Well, that's exciting. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Question four. Outside, Outside yeah, please no, go for it. So what's your, been your most enjoyable day out? Yeah. Do you know I had a fantastic day out the other day? Tell me more. And I'm glad you said excluding family events. Because, yes. you know, I'm a member of the Harley Owners Group, the Hog Chapter. Yay. And we had a visit from all of my chums from the 1066 chapter in Sussex about six weeks ago. What a great title. In the middle of that brief summer that we had back oh, yes. in June, if you remember it. I do. And we went on a ride from Hereford, my house in Hereford, to Aberystwyth and back across the mountains. A beautiful, warm, sunny day. About 35 Harley Davidsons. Absolutely fabulous fun. Can I be controversial here? Yes. Yeah, I can't ride a motorbike to save my life. I love watching Speedway. That's another story. Yes. But I can't see why people love hogs. Tell me more why you like a hog. Why they're, they're works of art, Martin. I think we're going to bring this interview to an end. I think there's such heresy. must <laughs> be outrageous. What are you thinking? I know. Um, they are things of great beauty. And, you know, if you're old and fat and balding like me, they're quite comfortable too. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, well, they don't go terribly fast. They're not like these mad Japanese sports bikes, which, you know, will no. stand up and bite you if you're not careful. And there's a sort of community yes. around them as well, which is rather fun. So, yeah. No, it's fine. Is that all right? Is that, is that okay? Is that yeah, allowed? that's fine. I'm, I'm going <laughs> to let you off. I'm going to let you off. If it was me, I personally would go and buy a Triumph Bonneville. Would you? you what, a Triumph? Yeah. What are, is, that, is that a motorcycle, mate? I've not heard of them. <laughs> I believe so. I think they're, what's the word? Oh, yes, British. Uh, except they're not made in Britain, are they, anymore? I don't think. I thought they were. No, I thought they were still... Are they? I don't know. Yeah. Other, motor other motorcycle makes are available, listeners. There are, yes. And Carl Fogarty, he has his own motorbike company as well. Oh, does he? 
Okay, mm, I think so. <laughs> right. Well, there you go. Thank you for answering that because that was another question I was going to ask you about your love of hulks and things yeah. like that, which stands for Harley Owners Group. That's right. It? Yes, and love is stronger word because I love many things in life more than I love my Harley Davidson motorcycle. One of whom is God. Just, just lest I be accused of any sort of idolatrous attachment to my motorcycle. Yeah. It's fun, but that's it. And it's very old, and so it's not indulgent. Like if you, yeah, they're very expensive if you buy them new. Yes, apparently so. Mm. Apparently so. And that reminds me, years ago, growing up in the 1980s, as a, yeah, through my, shall I become a Christian? Shall I become a Christian sort of face? One of the questions I used to like discussing with people was, if Jesus came back today, what car would he drive? But I'm going to change it to you. If Jesus came back today, what motorbike would he ride, do you think? Uh, I don't know. I'm not familiar with other makes of motorcycle, really. <laughs> probably, uh, do you know, I think he'd probably not draw attention to himself, so he'd probably drive a tatty old scooter. <laughs> That's a good point, actually. That's a good point, because you can hear a hog coming from miles away, can't yeah. you? I've, I've got the only Harley Davidson in Western Europe with legal exhaust pipes, I'll have you know. Really? You can't hear mine coming from a great distance. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Brilliant. Thank you. Well, we're moving on to the last question here then. Question number five, good sir. What has been your most embarrassing moment? Yeah. Well, I have to say there is a very clear candidate for the most embarrassing moment in my, my life which involved a French pharmacy and trying to speak French, but that's, that's as much detail as I'm prepared to share. Um, the, the second most embarrassing moment in my life was when I took my family to the Wintershaw Passion Play in Surrey many years okay. ago, which is a, it's an extraordinary outdoor event where they, over the course of a day, they uh, do retell the story of Jesus. It's acted mm -hmm. out by just local people. It's absolutely amazing. And we found ourselves at the bottom of this natural amphitheater in the scene where Jesus was being crucified very graphically. And it, everyone, there's about 3,000 people behind us, and it was all in hushed silence because it was a very somber moment. And the deepest point of the silence, my then five-year-old son, at the top of his lungs, shouted, Dad, this is really boring! <laughs> so that was, that was quite embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. Did anybody laugh? Please tell uh, me. No, did. they didn't. It was not a funny moment. It was just a dead, dead embarrassing moment. Oh, I find that funny now. Yeah. Yes. Well, I found it funny now. I didn't find it funny at the time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, thank you for answering that. I think yeah. you've got a, a better picture of you, yourself, yeah. sir. It would be remiss of me not to mention two very important dates in your life, actually. Okay. This sounds like a, this is your life, doesn't it? Yes. November the 4th, 1978, which you've sort yes. of alluded to. Yes. And the 6th of May, 2023. What do you oh, remember yes. about both those dates? Because they can dovetail very nicely in. Oh, well, okay. Well, the, the 4th of November, 1978, at half past 10, 29 minutes past 10, because I looked at my watch, was the moment I gave my life to Christ. Wow. The moment I gave my life to Christ, and I was washing my grandmother's car outside her house, and I'd been challenged 24 hours previously because I, I think I'd started, going to, I'd started going to church and I'd started looking into the, the truth of Christian faith mm -hmm. and I'd come to the conclusion that it was probably true, but that doesn't make you a Christian. Becoming a Christian is about giving your life to Jesus Christ and submitting yeah. your life to, to his lordship. And I hadn't done that. And I was challenged whether I was going to do that or not. 
And I felt I, I, I had this real dilemma because by that stage in my life, most of my social life was in the church. I had lots of friends there. But I thought if I'm not prepared to sort of go all in, it would be rather hypocritical to carry on going. Yeah. And I didn't really want to not go because of all of the social stuff. So I was grappling, shall I, shan't I, shall I, shan't I, shall I, shan't I? And that was the point at which I came out with, as you imagine, you know, given my illustrious career path in the church, the very, very deep theological prayer, oh, right then. (laughs) That was was my prayer of commitment, oh, right then. And I had the most extraordinary experience of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Wow. While I was washing my grandmother's car. It was completely, completely and utterly transformative. Wow. Utterly changed my life. Yeah. Very, very quickly. So I started sticking stickers, Jesus Loves You stickers, on the back of my motorcycle. And when I was driving into school and my friends thought I'd gone completely around the bend. Yeah. But it it was just amazing. Absolutely extraordinary experience. And yeah, so I've been following Jesus ever since then, 1978, 4th of November. It's the same date, same date I was put into my first parish as oh, a vicar. Was it? Yeah, same date, 4th of November, 1998, 20 years afterwards. And that parish was? That was Rudgwick, which used to guard the frontier of the Diocese of Chichester against the Guildford Hordes. <laughs> and it was a nice little parish on the borders of, of Surrey and Sussex. Yes. And I was there for 11 very, very happy years. Wonderful. Before moving on to other things. So, yeah, so there's that. And then I suppose the other date that yes. you're allude, alluding to is the coronation this year, where I was, I was one of Camilla's companions. Yes. I walked her in, we walked her in, and we walked her about, and we walked her out again, and no one fell over, and that was good. That was, amazing, that was an extraordinary experience too. When you're there, it's quite an intimate experience because the Westminster Abbey actually looks much bigger on television than it feels when you're in it. Yeah. And you weren't really conscious of all these cameras and a billion people watching you because the cameras are all sort of carefully mounted and quite discreet. Yes. But yeah, it was, we, had a, we had a lot of rehearsals beforehand. So I was there for the whole week before. And yeah, it was, well, I mean, what can one say, really? Everyone saw it on telly. Most, most people saw it on telly. Yeah, they did. it did. It was, well, just a remarkable experience. She, she sent me a half case of wine and a nice handwritten note afterwards, which was very kind of her. Oh, that was lovely. Yeah, yeah. I've got my invitation framed on the wall. Quite right, <laughs> too. Quite right, yeah. too. Something to be yeah, very yeah. proud of. Lots of souvenirs. Well, actually, at the end, I had to, I was, I was slightly naughty at the end, really, if I may confess to your listeners. Please. Well... We had to wear these copes, which are these great big cloak things. And right at the end of the service, the king and queen go behind the altar where they sort of adjust all their robes and crowns and things in order to come out. And then those of us who were the king and queen's companions had to meet them as they came out of the the door. And it's quite a complex set of steps. So I had to have a, a right hand free for Her Majesty to grab. And the Bishop of Norwich on the other side had to have hand free. But as I looked around, I thought, if I don't grab some orders of service at this point, there's not going to be any left when I come back later on. I need my order of service as a souvenir. Yeah. So there were quite a lot of spare ones lying around there. So I grabbed three. So right hand, I had them stuffed behind my cope. And left hand freed for Her Majesty to so she didn't fall over. So I got some souvenirs. I know of a cape. I know of a coat. But what's a cope? A cope. Well, it's just basically like a giant cape that goes all the way down to 
to the floor. It's, it's a it's a thing Anglicans and Roman Catholic vicars clergy wear on it's special got occasions. That's called a cope. You see it? Called a cope. My ignorance. That's I right. I should have learnt that years ago. No, I don't think you should. Okay, why then. should you know that? Why should anyone know the bizarre names for uh, the funny, funny frocks that Anglicans wear? Pub quiz night, maybe. <laughs> oh yeah, that, yes, you could. That could be that. You could have learned that, Martin, couldn't you? That yeah. could be your your destination, and uh, you'll be the winner. <laughs> Something like that. Something It'd like be that. very popular. I don't know if you can answer this question or not, but I remember back in 1973 for Princess Anne's wedding to Captain Mark Phillips and yeah. reading up all about it, and it turns out that. One of the people who was in all his finery and everything else Funny. on the, the open coach on the way back actually was a, a private detective and the other person wasn't and he had to sort of obviously learn oh. certain things. What security arrangements did you have to go through? Special training? Because you were almost like a bodyguard to Queen Camilla. Well, we didn't really. No, we didn't have any special training. The, the training of the, the security was very, very good and very discreet. Yeah. Clearly, they were screening the Abbey every morning to check for anything. On the last couple of days before the event, we had to go through, and there was only one entrance in, we had to go through airport security type things to check our bags and and all of that. But on the day itself, there was quite a large cordon out from the Abbey, which you just couldn't get through unless you had a pass. So we had a pass, of course. But once you had a pass, you could get get in and out really easily. It was it was fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I I think it was it was very. I mean, you could tell you're looking around who the security people were with their little earpieces. Yes. Whether they had bulges under their arms, I don't know. But I suspect some of them probably did. Yeah. And it all went off without a hitch in terms of the security. Mind you, could you tell the difference between a gun and uh, the order of services stuck behind? Oh, oh, now there you are, Martin. That's that, that's a little bit close to the bone. <laughs> no, thank you for showing that. We talked about well, you talked about your favourite parable. My favourite parable is uh, the parable of the sower. Ah, and okay. having studied soil and crop rotation like you did, hmm. let's know, please. What extra insight can you add to this parable, please? Parable of the sower. Well, instant, interesting thing. When Jesus told that parable, and he talked about twenty times, sixty times, a hundred times, what was sown yeah the people who are listening to that would have fallen about laughing because that sort of multiplication of the seed is unheard of you may not know this this is a fascinating fact go for it but the world record wheat yield i think it may have been surpassed now but it was in the it was in the 80s mm-hmm. in a field just outside aberdeen and some of the highest you've been very surprised to know this some of the highest wheat yields in the world per acre or per hectare come from Scotland because they have very, very long days. And so they get lots of sun on the wheat while it's growing. And even there, the, that world record wheat yield would have been less than 100 times what was sown. So one of the things Jesus is saying in that parable is that this seed is pretty amazing, potent stuff that you can scatter it across a pretty dodgy field with rocky bits and all the other bits and yet it still yields the most amazing quantity of crop and i think that that was that was one thing really knowing a little bit about statistics i'm assuming it's wheat it probably must have been a cereal of of some sort yes that was being sown in the story and and that you know these fields would have been in the family for generations so people would have known 
you know, where the perennial weeds were, which generation after generation they'd tried to dig out. They still keep coming back. And they'd, they'd have known where the paths were crossing the land. And they'd have known that, you know, certain parts of the field, if it rains at the right time, you're going to get a crop. If it's droughty, you're going to get a crop. But they sow it anyway. So it's also an e- e- example of you know, indiscriminate grace. Yes. That God shows the, sows the seed of the gospel even though the you know in, on, in human terms where it lands might not look very auspicious, yeah, yeah. But nonetheless, it's a powerful seed. I mean, I wonder, you know. So I think for myself, you know, if someone had looked at me as a seventeen-year-old sitting in my bedroom writing grumpy letters to the producers of religious television, they wouldn't probably have thought that I'd end up as the Bishop of Hereford. No. You'd have thought. And sometimes that's the truth. But I mean, perhaps it is sometimes. You know, people who are the least likely end up in in surprising places. Yeah, yeah. When you said, all right, then, sort of, yeah. <laughs> come in Jesus' mind. Yeah, I was, I was, yeah I was, it was that sort of tone of voice, too, actually. Because from West, you have to get your accents right, because I came from West London. All oh, right. If you come from West London, it's through the nose like that. That's the accent. <laughs> but if you come from East London or yeah, North London, like it's, through the back, it's more like the back of the throat. <laughs> yeah. But West London is much more nasal. So it was all right then. That was that would have been my what I said. That's great. The reason why I was saying that is that I became a reluctant Christian myself in 1987, sitting on the staircase at my mum's house, and it was just like, all right, right. God, come into my life, sort of thing. Yeah. No fireworks or anything. Mm. But it's it's interesting because of your background uh, and what happened. The quote I found to say that you want to help people find Jesus for themselves. Hmm. must be like a, a bit of a kickstart for you. So, so tell me more how you go about doing that and why you want to do it. Well, ultimately, I became a Christian because I became convinced that what Christians claim about who Jesus was, what he did, how he rose from the dead, what that says about who we are as individuals is, is true, hmm. basically. I've always found it quite difficult to completely empathise with people who've always been in the church. I mean, I, in some sense, I envy them, the, you know, the privilege of being brought up in the church, Christian parents, uh, and, and having sort of warmed up to faith gradually. That wasn't my experience. I, mine was, you know, I was heading in the wrong direction, and I needed to turn, put the brakes on and turn 180 degrees and go back in the other direction. And so I, I also, very conscious from my own experience, that I never, I'd never really thought about it. And, and it so often seems to be the case that uh, particularly young people I hear, you know, when, the, when someone actually really explains the gospel to them in a way that they can understand, they say, why has no one ever told me this before? Because it, it just resonates. And I, I do think that the gospel is the greatest power on earth to transform human hearts, you know, to put marriages back together, to heal people emotionally, physically, spiritually, to give us a sense of meaning, significance, purpose, all of the things that are hardwired into us as yes. human beings and that really we, we seek after to make us flourish, all of the answers to those things are to be found in a relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. Basically, I'm utterly convinced that that's the truth. That's what, you know, when I get up in the morning and I love other people to know that mm. and to respond to that and to discover that for themselves. But because I had a you know scientific, I did a scientific degree, 
A levels and things were all scientific. So I have that's sort of the way my mind works. Yes. Yeah. So for me, if something is true, then it has significance, and you need to respond in the light of the fact that it is true. And that was the that was the preaching of the early apostles, wasn't it? You know, they said Jesus rose from the dead. Oh my goodness me! That means everything is different. Nothing can be the same again, because God became a human being. He was crucified, and then he rose again. And if he rose again, everything is A, B, C, and A, D. Everything is different. And the gospel is the news that that's happened, and we need to sort of reorientate our lives around that new spiritual reality, which is yes. at the heart of history. Yes. So that, that's what you know, drives me. So I get, I get really irritated when people start calling the resurrection into question or implying that it doesn't matter or you know, that it was a spiritual resurrection, whatever on earth that means, or that Jesus rose in their hearts, whatever on earth that means. You know, basically, a human being who was God incarnate died, and on the third day he came back to life again. Yes. And that's the center of history. And everything changes because of it. I'm asking this purely as a conversation piece, not to be condemning or anything towards the Church of England or that, but sometimes those questions, you know, about spiritual resurrection actually come from mm. within the Church of England. Yeah, we're a bit of a diverse bunch. Yeah. I think I don't think they do quite as much, actually. I think even even within sort of my lib, I mean, being caricaturing, I'm calling people liberal, Catholic, evangelical, because they are caricatures to some extent. Yes. I mean, even amongst my liberal colleagues, I don't know, I, I know of hardly anybody who would question the bodily resurrection of Jesus now, and I, that's that's been a very significant change. I think. I think you know the, the the catastrophe for the church of the liberal theology from Germany in the 19th century, which basically you know cast doubt on absolutely everything and took scissors and paste to the scriptures and said, well, that can't possibly be true because we're too scientific and advanced now. Yes. Whereas actually it is true because it happened and they're they're eyewitness accounts of what happened. And I th I think that sort of theology did have quite a strong influence on the church in the 60s. But I, I don't think that's the case anymore. I think I think the Church of England is much more orthodox now than it was. And certainly at the theological level, it's much more orthodox than it was even 50 years ago. I mean, I remember when I was growing up, I mean, every Easter they'd trot out some bishop and interview them, wouldn't they? Mm -hmm. And they'd sort of cast doubt on the on the resurrection, you know, up to and including, you know, David Jenkins. Not that I was thinking of him at all much. Conjuring tricks with bones. Although the poor chap is much misquoted, but, oh, right, okay. but nonetheless, that's, uh, and he was a, he was a, you know, great intellectual and academic. I, I remember going to a lecture he gave once and someone, and it was you know, completely incomprehensible. Uh, someone at the end stood up and said, Bishop David, could you sum up the gospel for us in a sentence? And David uh, thought for a minute, he said, yes. He said, it seems to me that the gospel is universal potentiality, eschatological finality, and uh, and uh, something else. I can't remember the first word. <laughs> Thanks, Dave. That really helped. <laughs> I think he was pulling someone's leg doing that, but it was... Uh... I hope so. <laughs> that reminds me, there was a, a famous theologian from Switzerland. Karl Barth. Carl the Bart. great Karl Barth. Jesus loves me, this I know, because the Bible tells me so. Yes. Is that a true story? It is a true story. And he, he said it on a lecture tour in America. Oh, it was America, And it? it's quoted from multiple sources because he went to various different places and gave a theology lecture. 
And they were all really hacked off with him because he stood up and that was his lecture. And then he sat down again. <laughs> really? That was it? Yeah, yeah. I think, I believe that's the case. So all these, they were expecting this long erudite lecture on, you know, church dogmatics, which on your bookshelf is about, if you put all the volumes together on your bookshelf, yes. it's about two foot six long. Yeah, yeah. And, and he stood up and said, Jesus loves me, this I know, because the Bible tells me so. I mean, he had quite an interesting personal life, Karl Barth. I know nothing about him. Which I think restricted the effectiveness of his actual ministry. But uh, he was great. You know, he was the, one, the, probably the greatest theologian of the 20th century. Okay. Because maybe we could turn this around then. He had a, a, a private life. What, what was it all about then? Oh, well, he had, a, he had, an, he had a, a mistress who lived in his house with his wife. Okay. And she, his wife, was clearly not very enthusiastic about this, but he refused to give her up. Really? Mm, and that was the whole of his life. Mm, I was hoping to turn that around there. And of course, the interesting thing is that those sorts of ethical decisions often undermine, well, often they do, they undermine, you know, the, the quality and the vibrancy of faith. Yeah, exactly. Be interesting to how you could tie that up. Well, I think people can be selective. Yeah. People have an endless capacity for self-deception, actually. Tell me more. Well, you know, people, I mean, people find, can, can find all sorts of ways of justifying their behavior. Mm -hmm. And you, people just develop blind spots. I'm sure I've got blind spots to my own behavior. That's why God puts us in communities of fellowship, to help us to see one another's faults and help one another see our own faults. You know, I, I can think of times in my own crystal journey when, my wife, who is a very, very perceptive and wonderful Christian woman, has said things to me about, you know, my own character flaws. And I've said, oh, no, 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 oh, no, I'm not like that, I'm not like that. And then you... In your Winston Churchill voice. You do something and then, and you think, oh my goodness me, yes, she's absolutely right, isn't she? <laughs> yeah. I bang to rights here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so if you think the church is becoming more orthodox then, hmm. what can the church do? Bear in mind, you are a, a bishop, and yeah. just within Hereford, let's say, then to make it easier hmm. for you. What can the church in Hereford do to help those that are disillusioned with going to church, having been to church all their lives or a couple mm. of years, and are now disillusioned? Hence why I mentioned that in my uh, top part of the, yeah. the podcast. There's always a... I, I think, you know, the church, it's a bit like the NHS. Everybody criticises the NHS as an institution. Yeah. But when you go ill and you go to hospital you find that it's staffed by absolutely wonderful people who are trying to do their best with limited resources to look after you and help you to get better. And it's easy to knock the institution because, you know, the institution is a human institution. It's flawed in all sorts of ways. But if people encounter living faith, and of course the church, you know, individual churches are flawed as mm -hmm. well, but... If people encounter living faith, and if you've got a group of Christians who are seeking to live it out and seeking to share it and seeking to be a sort of community where people are genuinely welcomed and genuinely listened to, I, th I think that can be a very powerful... I, mean, I think it was Leslie Newbigin, the great missionary bishop, who said the you know the greatest hermeneutic of the gospel is a community that lives by it and yes. I mean, hermeneutic is a word as we know meaning you know explaining and and presenting and that's still the case i i'm i'm absolutely committed here to vibrant local churches that are living out the gospel and and 
becoming formed into the likeness of Jesus Christ so other people can see Jesus Christ. But inevitably, sometimes it, it, does, it goes wrong and, and people do have you know, bad experiences and, and that's a failing. You know, I'm yes. deep, deeply sorry when people have experienced those things and sometimes those failings have been absolutely appalling. And we're, as a church, as many institutions are, trying to, you know, recover and, and find healing for those who our communities have abused. Yeah. Over, you know, as we, as we come to terms with, the, you know, the reality of our own history and our own failings. Well, what about the, the media then? How much of it is a, a witch hunt, do you think, whereby the Church of England is so easy to have a go at? So let's have no. a go at them. Well, I mean, you'd have to. I think. I think the thing is that a lot of journalists don't understand anything. They don't really understand the spiritual at all. That mm. they're not. They're not particularly informed. And so, I mean, sometimes the, the the articles that you see about the church just irritate me because they're inaccurate. They they quote things or they describe things, yeah. and they just simply, well, that's not it. You know, you, you haven't understood it journalists like stories of things that have gone wrong. It's no news story, is it? If we had a fantastic church service and lots of people came and felt welcomed and it was a, a great experience for them, they like a story of, you know, a vicar doing something awful yes. or a church doing something awful or, or you know, something like that. And, and that, that's what is more interesting because people are drawn to, yeah. you know, out of that sort of thing. I, I mean, I don't ascribe a, you know, a, 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 a mean motive to journalists. They're just after, you know, the story, and they'd be after the same story if it was any other institution, really. But they don't like hypocrisy. And, of course, inevitably, all Christians are hip hypocrites because we don't practice what we preach. We have an ideal which human beings, without the power of the Holy Spirit, cannot attain to. We We will always be a community of people who don't reach our own highest ideals. And so it's easy to pick holes because, you know, we're failing all the time. I think that the thing is that we have to be honest about that, that the church is a hospital for, for broken, sinful people. Yeah. That's why it's there. Jesus said it's not the healthy you need a hospital, it, uh, it's the sick. Yes. Well, just imagine then everybody in Hereford right this second somehow through the, the mm. medium of the media was listening to this podcast and i mean mm. everybody they might be in hospital they might be home they might mm. be having a nice cup of tea whatever mm. Mm. what would you say to them to encourage them what would i say to them i would say that it, it all starts with the fact that god has made the world and he loves what he has made and what he has made includes you and he loves you even though he can see deep into your soul and he knows everything that's wrong with you. Mm -hmm. But his first word is always that he loves you. And his, his goal in, in life, in your life, is to help you to discover that you are deeply loved and that he has done everything that is necessary to take the barriers away that stop that relationship developing. And that it is in that relationship discovering that you're deeply loved by God and that God has loved you so much that he's died for you. And in that death, in the great moral economy of the universe, everything that you've done wrong can be forgiven, that you will discover 
the human being that you were always intended to be and you will step into the reality of a life of flourishing. It won't be an easy life necessarily, but it will be the life that you were made for. And that's what I you know, love people to discover yeah. fundamentally. So if journalists were listening to that, or the 16, 17-year-old boy in his bedroom writing mm. a letter mm. to mm. <laughs> Songs of Praise or other TV programmes are available, yeah. <laughs> they would want to come back to you straight away. So you've obviously heard this several, several times in your career to date. What would be the first negative thing that would come back to you about that statement, do you think? They would probably say, okay, but it doesn't much look like it. As St. Teresa of Avila said, as she was thrown out of her, her carriage, she said to God, if this is how you treat your friends, it's no surprise you have so few. Well, that's a good line. There are, of course, enormous questions. Because if you think that God is bigger than the entire universe, and he made it, and it is encapsulated within him, his, his essence, it's hardly surprising that a human being on a tiny planet in a small galaxy in one corner of a foresaid universe would be able to remotely understand how a God like that worked mm. or how he providentially ordered the world. It would just be simply impossible. So you find that every philosophical argument about suffering eventually just runs into the sand because you're gazing into the face of mystery. What I would say is, go on what you do know. And what we do know is that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should have everlasting God life. And he demonstrated that love by going through the most hideously cruel death that human, human beings have ever imagined to do to one another for us. And that because of that, in the divine economy, forgiveness becomes possible for those who will receive that by repentance and faith. And you know that you will go into life, even having seen that, and say, okay, I'm going into life trusting that is a revelation of God's love to me, which is the most extraordinary thing. Literature has pointed to it, you know, tale of two cities. And I mean, we all know about the nobility of sacrifice. If we've got children, we know what it is to give ourselves for the for the benefit of our own yeah. children yeah. but that that that's a factual foundational truth now when bad circumstance hit us or when illness hit us hits us or when uh, as it will because that's what it is to be a human being in a broken and sinful world that's a foundation that we take into that and because of that we have a faith we have faith that even in the dreadful circumstances of life which are incomprehensible, mm -hmm. God is still somehow at work. And he's bringing all of these things, weaving them all together, ultimately, to a good conclusion. And we Christians, because we've got the book of Revelation, read the end of the story. And we know that in the end, heaven and earth will be joined together in a glorious eternity. And God's will and purposes will be worked out. And when... when that wonderful verse that is often read at funerals where we say God will wipe every tear from their eyes and there'll be no more mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. That only makes sense if in retrospect it makes sense. Yes, yes. But when we get there, the things that we simply do not understand now and look profoundly and deeply mysterious 
and brutal and unkind, we will understand in retrospect. And there will be that sort of light bulb moment where we say, ah, that's what was happening then. Something you said earlier on, and it was very powerful for me as well, becoming a Christian, I read up loads of books to see (laughs) whether it was making sense or not. And I think it was Josh McDowell from America. He made this quote that you can't scientifically prove God exists because Mm. in order for science to be proven, you have to recreate something there and then. Mm. And so you can't therefore prove God exists through science. How true is that? Well, I think that's probably true, but uh, but there is a there is something about the inter. I mean, science deals with the how and the what, an observable reality, mm-hmm. and science looks at phenomena and constructs a theory to explain those phenomena, and then it advances by other phenomena coming in that don't quite fit, other observations that don't quite fit the theory, and therefore the theory is amended to incorporate, and that's an ongoing process. And so, you know, we move from Newton's theory of gravity to quantum physics, and we're still not there yet because quantum physics doesn't understand or explain a vast array of of the human, it's a pretty good theory and explains a lot of things, but it doesn't explain gravity, doesn't explain dark energy, doesn't explain dark matter, which were all things that are observable in their effects. So science does that, and it's a, it's a, but it never, it can never answer a why question. It can never answer, you know, the significance question, and that that is the realm of philosophy. But it's certainly the realm of faith. But there is an intersection between the world of observable facts and faith, and that's around the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So I do believe if you could get in a time machine, which scientists tell us is intrinsically impossible, but if you could. If you could get in a time machine and you could travel back 2,000 odd years to first century Palestine, you could have seen Jesus born, probably not in a stable, but in a part of a house that was reserved for animals. You could have seen that. You would have seen possibly angels in the sky. You would have seen Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. You could have seen so people healed. You could have seen all of these things. If you could have that, you could have seen Jesus crucified in history. You could have stood in the garden on that first Easter Sunday and felt the earthquake and you would have seen the stone rise, roll away, and you could have been amongst those disciples and you would have seen Jesus walking about. See, faith, Christian faith, is fundamentally based on observation. Mm. It's not philosophical speculation. It's based on seeing Jesus in history and all of the doctrinal formulations uh, that Christians have come up with about the doctrine of the Trinity and the doctrines of inspiration of Scripture and all these other things are really human beings trying to make sense of experience on observation. So when when Peter preached his first sermon after Pentecost, when he burst out of the room and you know proclaimed the gospel to the first time, he was able to do that because he had experienced the reality of the Holy Spirit coming into his heart, who had changed his heart and mind. Because only a, you know, a chapter before, he's still dense. He still doesn't understand what Jesus is really up to. He's asking, oh, at that time, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Well, can I be home secretary You know, when you come back? Uh, but then suddenly, 
you've got the proclam that you know, Acts chapter two, you've got the first sermon, and it's all there. And that's because Peter's experienced the reality of the Holy Spirit. And so they're then thinking, oh my goodness me, well, we know God's a father, you know, he made the world. That's steeped into us in our Jewish heritage. But yet we've seen this man walking around and doing the most remarkable things. And clearly he's more than just a man. And now we've experienced God, you know, in our hearts in a new way by the Holy Spirit. What's that mean? How can we, you know, find an explanation of that? So there isn't a necessarily a clash between science and faith because they're dealing in different yeah. realms. But it's not that faith is, is divorced from Christian faith is not divorced from physical, historical reality. It relies on physical, historical reality to have any validity or truth at all. You know, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then I might as well go back to being an agricultural advisor. I'm deluding people because it's the whole heart of what we're proclaiming. Because Jesus rose from the dead, everything's different. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, well, I don't know, go and do something else. I was going to ask you why you became a bishop, but I don't need to now. And I think everybody who's listening to this podcast would realise why you became a bishop. Well, someone asked me. I didn't get out of the way fast enough. (laughs) (laughs) It was a surprise. It was a surprise. I wasn't anticipating it. Well, you seem clearly cut for that job. Everything that you've learned from that. And what you've shared there has has been brilliant. I know time is uh, drawing us to a close. I was going to ask you about ICS, Intercontinental Mm. Society but maybe we can park that for another time, if that's all right, if you'd like to come back. Oh, maybe, yeah, yeah. maybe we come back again. Thank you, yeah, usual rates. Usual rates, yes, I'm, I'm very reasonable. <laughs> I need lots of money to pay for my, my, my motorcycles in hospital at the moment. You said. And I need, I need, you know, I just need, you know, any, any, any gratefully crowdfunding. <laughs> <laughs> well, gratefully received. <laughs> we'll see if we can do that. Uh, one final question then is, and that is your Christian hero. And I do this every time I interview somebody, yeah. somebody who you can talk about for t- no more than two minutes as to why this person is a Christian hero. And the two rules being that the person must be dead and mm. not in the Bible. So, okay. The Bishop of Hereford, the Right Reverend Richard Jackson. Sir, it's been a privilege hearing from you today. Thank you so much. Who is your Christian hero? Well, it could be anybody. Uh, there's so many heroes. I'm going to go with someone who was a sort of almost a friend, really, a guy called Dr. Larry Crabb. Wow. He was a psychologist and then became a spiritual director. And he had terrible taste in music. I had the privilege of going to a course that he ran, a couple of courses that he ran in America some years ago. He had terrible taste in music. He drank coffee that was far too hot and he had awful sense of humor. But he was a deeply, deeply, profoundly spiritual man who brought to life for me something of the reality of the gospel as it impinges on human psychology and helping me to understand in ways I really hadn't before how I tick and how the gospel impinges on how I tick and how responding to the gospel helps me to become more like Jesus Christ. I mean, he's written a shed load of books. Actually, towards the end, they were often repeating themselves quite a lot. But I've got a whole part of them in my study, and I revisit them occasionally. And, uh, and I must say, the week, the week that I spent at a course in Colorado uh, with him was probably one of the most transformative things I've ever done in my Christian life. Because? Well, because of all of this stuff, it was a lot of, stu- you know, a lot of sort of theoretical theology and psychology that became very, very real and uh, you know, really was quite formative in 
in, in I think moving moving me on from a stuck place yeah. and moving me on in my Christian journey. So, I mean, a lot of people are a bit suspicious about Larry Crabb, and I think it's suddenly a bit of a, an acquired taste. But I I found him personally hugely inspirational and very helpful. Thank you. I've never heard of him before. You say he's got a terrible taste in music. Music is one of the things that keeps me going. What kind of terrible taste in music did he have then? Oh, well, he liked Elvis a lot. Okay. At his, at his, um, I don't know if I should say this. Really. Go for it. At, go, at, go on, go at, on. Go on, be controversial. At his memorials. I mean, it's a matter of taste. Yes. It is a matter of, music is a matter of taste. To my taste, the music at his memorial service was amongst the worst I've ever heard in my life. Because? Humor is another thing. I, I remember when I was at this conference, um, and there were about 300 people there, all American folk. Someone was doing something allegedly funny at the front. Uh, there was 300 people and me, and they were all laughing like drains. And you know normally when you're, in a, you're, you're somewhere and everyone's laughing, you sort of yeah. go with the flow, don't you? And I was just completely baffled. I just said, I cannot remotely see how this is amusing. But they thought it was funny. But that's you know, different cultures, different tastes, isn't it? <laughs> what kind of music do you like then, sir? Oh, uh, quite eclectic. Do you know, I, I was a bit of a punk in my... I never dressed up. No, nor me. But I, I yes, I, uh, I can remember happily pogoing in the Marquee Club. Oh, I never went there. In the 70s in London, which was a health and safety nightmare. Yeah. If they had a fire, everyone would have died. See, we're the same age, so... Well, we are. Who died this guy? The Skids. Oh, fantastic. 999. Oh, I brilliant. 999, I like to like 999. Homicide the... is one of their singles. Yeah, oh, yes, I've got, I've got two of their albums on my iPad. Played oh, them quite wow. a bit. If I ever went on Desert Island Discs, yeah. I would shatter the illusions of many people. I'd have all sorts of incredibly inappropriate music on. You know, and I like you know classical choral. I like a sort of quite a whole range of things. I was brought up in that, unfortunately. If I'm coming back, I have to, this is a confession. If I'm coming back from a sort of difficult service or yeah. something, I often retreat to in the car to nine 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 very loud. <laughs> With the first line, I believe in homicide. Is that... <laughs> I believe in homicide. Yes, that's only say. I've 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 never met someone who even knew what who nine 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 were. We have it's like a bond, we have, Martin. I've got it on the United Artists <laughs> record label, the single. Oh yes, I, I yeah, love yeah. it. XTC are my heroes. <laughs> Doctor Feelgood, all that yep. sort of stuff. But I never never went to yep. Kika. Wow. Well, there you go. There's some controversy that we'll see in the Hereford well, Chronicle. Well, Hereford Times, Hereford Times, local paper. Weeks to come. Bishop of Hereford believes in homicide. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Explain yes. that one. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for your time. It's been a privilege. Great pleasure. I really enjoyed listening today, and I will be listening back to it because there's so much that you shared that I just need to listen and and take in. Thank you so much. Great. Cheers. Thank you. Okay. So, so thank see you, you again sometime. Please do. Take care, Martin. Yeah. Cheers. Thank you. Bye bye.